Okay, very good. Hey, Rolf, I think we are we are in time. Almost seven. We always start a minute early. Yeah, like German German precision. Um, so, first of all, uh, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your day. And um, I, I have to admit, you're a real hero. I grew up uh, watching you and watching Jan Ries, watching Jan Ulrich, watching Team Telekom. I think you were a, a huge influence on my on my cycling, and I got really excited. And I I'm sure you heard this a lot of times, but uh, the, the show you had. Uh, put up for us uh, in, in June every year was just amazing and I'm, I'm really really excited to to speak to you and um, yeah thank you so much for the time. Well thanks for having me it says a lot about my age if you say like when I grew up I've seen you riding and racing as a professional so that tells everything about my age so we uh, have to switch back in our minds now two decades <laughs> from to understand like that shifting was still on the frame and uh, you know there was disc brakes were just uh, invented for cars so that's the period that we talk about right now. It's only three years, my wife said. Yeah, uh, that it's only three years between us. So when I say grew up, I mean more as a cyclist. Yeah. Okay. Um, very good. Um, I just want to acknowledge you as well because you had so many achievements in your career. I think you rode 10 times the Tour de France, 15 times Roubaix, 14 times Tour of Flanders, uh, Giro Italia, uh, six times the Vuelta. That's a lot of kilometers, even in, in racing. So that. that it's just an unbelievable achievement. Uh, you were in the winning team with Jan Ulrich in 1997. Uh, you were in the winning team with Bjarne Ries in 96. Um, so that's, that's just an amazing career. I just want to start with you at the beginning of the career. So who introduced you to cycling and what are your first memories and first inspiration you had to get into the sport? Well, um, it, it's really strange. My father always liked, liked cycling and he would have loved to race, but there was just no money after the war. So he was born in 33. Uh, and uh, so we always went to the local race, the local circuit race. And, and actually they had this beginner's race with people with no license. And I was 13 years old and I participated there, but nobody would believe I would do it. So my father actually went fishing that morning. And I went there with my mother with kind of flat tires and blah, blah, blah. So I finished six, but I, uh, the prize for being six was like 24 yogurts. I think they were outdated. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I thought like, so that's probably the best I can ever do in life, you know, make something out of my passion was riding my bicycle. And then I joined the local club and started racing when I was 14. And it took me quite a while to combine. Uh, school and then later on I left school when I was 16 to learn a job like mold making, tool making until um, I really turned pro that, that went uh, went quite a long time down the road and uh, via the national team but that was the start really like with, with 20 yogurts outdated that I thought like this has potential let's <laughs> Very good. Who was your hero in, in these days when you were riding little Rolf on the bike and, and you were sprinting against your friends. Do you had anyone in your head to kind of motivate you and you were playing to be him? And uh, what was the inspiration? No, it was actually more the local guys, to be honest. The, the, the guys that who then kind of like ripped me off by selling me jerseys for 80 German marks when the value was probably 40. Um, but I was looking up to them. So, of course, I thought it's, you know, it's, a, it's an honor to wear their used jersey. But there was more like I found my way into it. And uh, there was never really a plan when I was 18 or something to become professional. It was, it was just the thing that I raced, that I went there with my father and, and my sisters and my mother all in one car, go to the race, liked it. And then it was really step by step. And then, of course, like the first time really thinking about it, that probably was uh, because of my former coach there, Hennes Junkermann, who okay. was fourth in the Tour de France himself. 
and was a really, really good pro and really looked after us when, when I joined this team, Olympia Dortmund. And, uh, and that was probably the first time when I really thought, okay, you know, maybe, maybe it makes sense to, to try. But I always set myself a limit. So I tried for two years. And if it doesn't really work out, then I better go back and, and study machine engineering, which, which I supposed to do then, and, uh, and find a proper job. But probably Junkermann and the setup there around Olympia Dortmund was, uh, was probably the, you know, the key to become professional. Very cool. You turned pro in 1991 with Helvetia, and then in 1993, you joined Team Telecom. And obviously, the most important question there is, how did you cope with the magenta, some call it pink, Uh, around 2,000 men in Lycra and in pink jerseys. How was this? Uh, did you like it? Uh, it takes a little bit of time to adjust to it. And uh, if you remember the first jerseys, they were not so, let's say, offending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was usually that color so much. There was a lot of, there was a lot of white. There was a, was a lot of black. Well, actually, it looked a little bit like there was, you, you rode on a freshly tarmacked road. And, you know, you got all these black sprinkles on your jersey. It wasn't really that pretty. I, then later on, they defined that magenta color as the color of the company. And uh, in general, it was nice because, because you know you, you, you're different than the other teams. This is like so remarkably different than everybody has a blue jersey. Um, so it was kind of nice also in the retrospective. Of course, you have, this, uh, you have these memories that I went to the girls team of T-Mobile in 2003 um, at the Grand Prix of San Francisco, because the day before, um, riding around there as an adult uh, in magenta, I get a lot of, uh, you know, like thumbs up at the red traffic lights. So that was, you know, the story about <laughs> disco. And it was really obvious that it was so different riding as a male in Lycra, in magenta through San Francisco, that I decided <laughs> to go with the girls' jersey, which was not the perfect cut for me, but uh, but there was mainly black. Very good, very good story. Um, 1996, you were in the team with Bjarne Ries and Jan Ulrich, and obviously Bjarne Ries won. What memories you have of the year 1996 and the Tour de France? Well, we have to start in the winter 95, I think. Um, because that's when, when Bjarne joined the team. And you also have to remember in 95, we were only selected for the Tour de France very, very last minute because sporting-wise, we didn't qualify. So there was a lot of doubt about our own quality. There was like no really self-confidence. And then in the winter 95, we had this, uh, this team meeting with, with press present. And then Bjarne Ries was sitting downstairs while we were kind of like sitting up on the gallery. And they interviewed him and... Uh, And then he said, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to win the Tour de France next year. And we kind of like had to close our nose to not start laughing upstairs because it was the area of Miguel Indurain. You remember it was when Miguel Indurain won five years in a row and nobody seriously believed that we, with our experience, with our history, could really beat Vanesto and Big Mick. So it was kind of like a learning process, but you know, if Bjarne has something, then it's this kind of like convincing people, buying people in to get people excited, enthusiastic about it on the bike and off the bike. And he really turned that team around by giving us tasks within the races. So just for example, in May before the Tour de France, we had to chase down a breakaway group with Tony Rominger, who won the Giro, who was a world, uh, our record holder with Miguel Indurain, with a few time trailers, which we would never think uh, about doing it or even being able to do it. And we did it. So that gives you confidence, that builds you up. And then 
in 96 we just kind of like exercised in 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 what we were learning over the year ah, fantastic so he was really the leader of the team and that really gave you all somebody to look up, up to fantastic yeah and then he had an unbelievable unbelievable tour obviously came out of the winner and the next year he wanted to obviously win again but then there was this uh, red-haired boy from germany who had a good good shape and uh, won then the tour. So how was it riding with Jan? I think that was one of the biggest moments, obviously, in, in cycling. That was a bit like Boris Becker uh, won Wimbledon and, and whole Germany was behind Team Telekom and Jan Ulrich and every the whole team. It was super exciting. So how do you remember 97? Also, like, roll back into 96 there because, because uh, honestly, already in 96, uh, Jan was, was stronger than Bjarne. Um, Jan could have won the tour in 96, but nobody knew that. So, you know, fair play. Bjarne was our captain. Bjarne was in shape. Bjarne for sure was tactically a different level in 96 than Jan has been. So Jan took that year to learn. But pure physically, Jan was stronger in 96 than Bjarne was. So now going into, into 97 with Jan being second and, and, you know, like just to sum up the, the, um, the success of 96, Bjarne won, Jan was second, Eric won the green jersey, and we were, I think we were second in the team classification, and we won five stages. So we were dominating, and that kind of like woke up whole Germany. So uh, 96, we had the peace and freedom to go into the tour with not being bothered from anybody. 97, there was already huge focus and uh, on the team and about the team, or of course about Jan, and then it was quite impressive. Uh, how he how he handled that basically he wasn't thinking too much about it. he was just doing what he's good at riding his bike and then also of course we all remember that stage to andorra that that jan won but yes. where bjarn gave him that free ride because we started with captains to say okay let's see you know you never really know what's going to happen you can break your collarbone on the first day and it's game over and when bjarn gave him basically the the okay to attack and to ride away um, that also needs a lot of, you know, strength and, and mentorship from Bjarne's side to say, it's okay, I understand you're stronger, you can win this Tour de France, so go ahead, you know, the next generation is, 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 is basically in the first row. And, uh, and then we pulled it off, of course, for us as domestics, uh, these three weeks were terrible because either we had a mountain stage and we had to hang on as long as we could for, for Bjarne and for, 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 um, for, for Jan, or it was a flat stage and then it was, uh, was for Eric to try to win stages. Yeah. So in modern days, you always have one big focus. So Team Ineos controls the race to not lose time on the flat stages. We tried to win those flat stages. And, and that was pretty demanding. And uh, so we, we came out of the tour really, really cooked and really tired, that's for sure. Do you remember the day, Andorra, did you hear it on the radio? Did Jan say it on the radio? Did he say it to Jan personally or you, he spoke over the radio? Everybody heard it. Uh, because I remember Jan was on the climb. It was um, the, the final climb and he was leading the, the, the group and he looked around and then he dropped them again, looked around, dropped them again and so on. So when it was, yeah. was going forth and back and um, then, then it, it seemed like he was, he was going off. Yeah. And then, then he was gone. But it was just one an amazing moment of, of cycling or Jan Ulrich's career. Uh, that he was, but how how was that, and how was it in the evening after that? How was the how was Bjarne Ries about the situation? I think everybody was pretty relaxed about it because yeah, you know, Jan in the national jersey of, of the champion of Germany, he won up there on the on the big ring, 
and uh, and it was so obviously how strong he was. It was so obvious how strong he was. So uh, so I think it was a big relief to say to have the jersey, um, to be in the driver's seat, to kind of like control it and to know um, with Jan and with Bjarne. And of course, like, you know, never forget somebody like Udo Bertz. And um, we have enough strength to uh, to control it from here because because Jan was just just a different level. Um, except that one day in the later on in the Bogies where you know where where we nearly lost it really towards the end of the tour, but otherwise we were always in charge and control. So it was more it felt like the natural result of what we all thought would happen that Jan is the strongest guy in the bunch. Yes, I think there was this famous sentence created from Udo Bölz. Uh, I, I really love that the German television was obviously speaking to them. And I think Jan was on, on Udo's wheel and he couldn't really hold the wheel. And it was, as you said, it was in the box and it was quite of a kind of a climb. And then um, the, the reporter asked him in the evening, um, what encouraging words did you pass on to Jan Ulrich during the day? And he just said, torture yourself, you, you pick yeah. Something like it's just a, just a swearing at him in, in the in the deepest possible way, just to to say, listen, you have to give it now. You're going to win the tour if you if you if you let them go now. It's going to be over. Uh, so you were there in that at that moment with him. No, no, no. We we had a as a team. We were really under pressure. So what happened was like, um, Festina straight away sent the guys out into the breakaway. So what they what they did was like in every group in front of the peloton, they had one rider. And then, of course, it was obvious what would happen to say Leroy Dufault and, and Richard Véran would wait and then try to bridge to the next group, to the next, next group and put the pressure on. So, you know, we had those guys jumping and we were, we were not, like, interested in somebody who was, who was 24th in GC on 30 minutes down to catch him back. But we knew the danger and we knew it would happen. And then we just couldn't really react. Bjarne had a terrible day that day, uh, I remember. So it was, it was literally just... Jan and Udo in that in that chasing group when when Virenk attacked, and me and Hepner somewhere in the cars. So I had a quite okay day, and uh, and I think me and Hepner in the car fighting like like crazy, trying to trying to hang on and because we understood how difficult it is now if you have a group of forty and only the yellow jersey alone with Udo, and a long way to go. That was that was a tough course. We had to ride full gas. What you usually do is like you drop. And you stay in the gruppetto. So you just ride home in the time limit, done, wait for the next day. But that day it was clear to us to say, we have to come back here. So then we were all like chasing super hard, taking high risk in the downhill. And ultimately, after the last climb, there was still a long way to go to, um, to the finish. I think it was Colmar, not really sure. Um, but it was a long way. And then Christian Henn made it back. He's made it back. Hepner made it back. I made it back. So then... It looks at the finish line like, oh yeah, Telecom really, really got it. But it was touching go to, to lose the tour. And I'm pretty sure it's not only what Udo said, but if you look at old pictures from Udo Birds and his face and his grimace and everything, yes. it's so impressive that you know you would you would rather die before you let the wheel go, that's for sure. Very good. How how is it when you work as a domestique? So you go back and pick the water bottles, you you help them with the jacket. Uh, you bring him the food and you're just trying to shelter you you're in the wind all day long so it must be just amazing if you ride for hours and hours and, and you support your team leader you must really believe into Jan and you know his capacity to to win the tour so what was motivating what was going through your head every day yeah I mean like you know being being part of a winning Tour de France team is, is just you know once in a lifetime if you don't have the talent yourself and that's what you realize in the first two maybe three years so 
what happens is like, and this is this is remarkable because nobody turns professional as the mistake. Everybody who turns professional is a winner. So, you know, but from then on, you have to go through different developments. So everybody, every team signs new riders because they believe it might be the next uh, Tour de France winner. It might be the next, uh, you know, world-class sprinter. It might be the next time trialist uh, on that planet. But then it turns out, mm, not really. He's good, but he's not good enough. And then you have to make the own decision. So what do I want to do? Do I stop? Because it gives me no pleasure to help somebody else and to be part of this whole uh, cycling, uh, professional cycling circuit. Or do I keep on chasing my dream to win? And then I'm seventh, I'm ninth, I'm fifth, I'm twelfth. And that is not interested for professional sport, interesting for professional sport. So if you fade out after three, four years, that's it. So if you want to have a long career, you have to make choices, but you also have to believe in what you do. And uh, you're not riding 40,000 kilometers just oh. to have a job and, you know, just to make a, a couple of thousand euros and, uh, and stay in the bunch. So you have to believe in what it is. And of course, with winner types like Jan, like Eric Zabel, and it was always fun. I mean, we always won our races. Uh, we always, you know, like enjoyed like uh, the, 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 the team itself. Fantastic. I want to take you to the year 2003 because I think that was a special year for you for the Tour de France. Um, I, I came to Dubai 2002. So 2003 was the first year where I watched the tour uh, in Dubai. Uh, I, I remember I watched it with customers to try to explain Uh, the newbies into the sport, what is all the jerseys about, the yellow jersey, how can somebody have the yellow jersey not winning a stage and so on, it was quite exciting. And obviously there was stage, um, the, the stage to Mosin, yeah, which was a super long stage, 230.5 uh, kilometers long. It was a very, very hot day. And I, I think you, you, you or somebody decided for you that you have to get in the breakaway more or less straight away from the start. You had Paolo Bettini with you and you started a breakaway and tell us about this this um, amazing day for you in, in at the Tour de France. Yeah, it was a little bit crazy. Uh, as you know, like being 75 kilos um, and not really being a pure climber, um, to join that breakaway, I think, with, with, with five, five climbs. And then, yeah, Morzine um, is also not known to be all downhill. Um, so, so, but anyway, we thought like this is the first weekend with big climbs. Usually what you see in these days, at least what happening is like, nobody really wanted to have the jersey and nobody really wanted to control the race. So the first weekend always is a big audience and gives you a lot of, a lot of media attention, but it's also a fair chance that you make it to the finish line. If you work years forward now, think about Linus Gerdemann, his yeah. ride into the yellow jersey, winning that stage and having the yellow jersey was exactly the same situation. It goes a bigger group. They don't let you go on 20 minutes, but they, you know, keep you just controlled. And then you have a fair chance to make it to, to the line. And I thought like, okay, if, if, if I'm out there with not pure climbers, I can probably hang on for quite a long time. Then uh, Richard Virenk decided, unfortunately, uh, to attack from the bunch, bridge to us. And then I had a problem, of course. Uh, dropping him was, was literally impossible. Even so, I tried to attack him. That was pretty impressive, what the guys in the peloton said. Like, they heard it on radio that, you know, me with 75 kilos would, into the last climb, um, attack the, you know, the seven-time mountain jersey winner of the Tour de France. Yes. I wanted to impress him. I just thought, like, okay, you know, I, I claim I'm super strong. And then he probably catches me. And then I always ride next to him on his bottom bracket 
to show strength, um, well, it didn't really work. It worked uh, actually till five kilometers to go from the top, and then he dropped me, but I still finished second. So overall, it was uh, it was a success, but of course not what I was hoping for to win that stage. Yeah, you were you were third overall, and you got a polka dot jersey. You won the jersey. Uh, Varang was in yellow, um, and then the next day you had the polka dot jersey up to Alp S. Yeah, true. Well, I still have the, the general classification as a printout at home because it was Virenk, Armstrong, Aldak. So from my point of view, it, they could have ended the tour right there. Um, I would have been quite happy with that. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think uh, the next day I made it from third GC into third last GC because because really that stage in the mountains took so much energy out of me. Um, there was nothing left. Uh, I think we started a, into that stage, which ended then in Alpes on a fourth category climb and I was dropped in the climbers jersey. I was dropped and was fighting back and, you know, legs turned a little bit better. But ultimately I made it with the, with the best climber, um, uh, having the, the, the jersey for the best climber in the last group up to Alpes So I think personally, I probably hold the record for the slowest time up to Alpes in the in the Tour de France climbers jersey. But it didn't really matter. I enjoyed that day. It was really, really fun. Of course, nobody ex ever expected that. So you, if you see now how everybody is styled, you know, everybody has a painted helmet, everybody gets a special bike and handlebar tape and like, you know, shorts with coconuts. <laughs> and I just got the jersey. Here we <laughs> nobody go. Nobody was prepared. It would not last for more than one, one day, but it was still fun. And, uh, and of course, like it always gives you good memories. Very good. Fantastic. So the same year, 2003 as well, you had a, a fantastic achievement in, or in Paris-Roubaix. You, you, you were 15 times uh, in Roubaix and this, this year you became ninth and you were in the breakaway with uh, Dario Piero. Um, how was this? How is riding Roubaix? How is it to do 260 kilometers uh, of distance in one day and about 60 to 80 kilometers over cobblestones? Um, and and you, you must really love that race because you, you participated 15 times. <laughs> yeah, every every year, um, and it was nearly it was it was really like the only reason I would have extended my career would have been uh, to do another Ferro Roubaix and another Tour of Flanders, because for me those are the most beautiful races to do. I mean, uh, Roubaix you really have to be lucky, but Roubaix uh, you have a chance to win. So to compare, if you see Liège, Bastogne Liège, uh, which is you know climbing in the Ardennes, the best will always be in the top five yes. or win. But in Roubaix, if you see so many winners, unexpected winners, uh, you know, you see Matthew Heyman um, from Mitchell and Scott, who broke his, his wrist six weeks before, only trained on the trainer, and then still won Roubaix out of a breakaway. There was Bucks there. There were so many guys winning out of the situation. So there's a chance in Roubaix for everybody to win. And if you would interview uh, 200 riders, I tell you, 80 would think they could have won today. Mm -hmm. They just got bad luck, wrong moment, wrong this, wrong that, because you still believe you can do it. So it always, um, it is this this race that you say, hmm, if I have this one day in my life, I have a chance to to win it. And of course, it's epic. You know, there's nothing else than, than riding on these cobbles on high speed. As long as you're fast, it's uh, it's just really, really nice and really, really fun. If you start to slow down, it's absolutely terrible because you have to think about riding on cobbles. If you're fast, you kind of like, you you know, you bounce on top of the cobbles. Yes. As soon as you're really slow or in the rain, you basically ride against the cobbles. 
mm. and that really slows you down that really hurts and that really kind of like that that's you know you just can't make it forward anymore so the key is like you know you have to go fast and you have to you know, stay on the gas and uh, but if you do it it, you, it kind of gets you in a flow and then it's it's yeah, it's you know you probably don't believe it but it's it's really fun it's really fun to do it and and i loved it and uh, you know i could have done it probably five times a year um and and wouldn't complain about it so um so it's a beautiful race what were special preparations you had more bar tape you had different tires you had how did you prepare for for such a day yeah in the beginning uh, i tried a lot so so like the, the first year with a swiss team with not really a lot of experience with Helvetia la swiss um, I just, I just kind of like wrote and next day um, I couldn't really open the glass of marmalade because, because my, my fingers were swollen and I had no power and, and anything. So next, next year I thought like, okay, I do cross tapes on my fingers, um, you know, with tape to give it more stability. So they're not bouncing that much. What I forgot was like between the cross, the, the tape was still some skin. So I had blisters everywhere. Literally, I had no skin on my fingers anymore. So that wasn't really a good idea. And then from the third year on, I just managed to find like the right pressure on the handlebar. Yeah. So you don't have to, if you hold it really, really tight to try to get control, it will cramp on your lower arms. You can't, you know, hold it for 60 kilometers on cobbles and for 260 kilometers in total, like really, really tight. If you keep it too loose, it's too bouncy. So, you know, you're like everything like smashes on each other. So you just have to find the right pressure, the right position. You turn the handlebar a little bit up, so you would drift, tilt the levers a little bit, so you ride more on the levers, and uh, and then yeah, you know, tire and tire pressure is a big topic on Ruby. In yes. our days, we kind of like went from 21 to 23. Now Ruby is literally on 30 millimeter tires, with uh, with going low as as four bar on tire pressure. So it really really changed over over time now. And right now it's pretty comfortable. So there's definitely no need for rock shots or, or any kind of suspension system because the tires give enough of that as long as you ride fast. Very cool. Um, are you still in touch with the old gang, like with Eric Sabel, with Udo Berl, so Jan Ulrich, and, and who would be the, the fastest guy now on the right? Are they still riding the other boys? Yeah, well, definitely Eric. Um, I, I'm not really sure if he ever reduced his training. Um, he just kept on going and, you know, he has a wonderful place on Mallorca um, where we live. He only lives about 35 kilometers away from me. And, uh, well, you know, sometimes I really think I hate him for living so close to me because, uh, because if he rides, he just passes my house. I like from my office, I look over the, over Lake Mönese, it's called. And, um, it's beautiful, but then he passes there, waves up to me. I sit at the office. He does does one lake around the uh, one loop around the lake, comes back, waves again. I'm still in my office, and I know he rides another hour back home, and he has done 100 kilometers. While I just sit on my butt on my chair, um, you know, trying to follow up with whatever emails. So, um, so I'm really close with Eric, um, with Jan. Well, we know he had some personal problems, so I I prefer to completely leave him alone for now because I think he you know he has to find his balance back in in, in life. And that's fair enough. We should all give him that time. And well, as I said, like I was in, in, in touch with, with Udo Birds uh, when wow. he when he announced he would do the Cape Epic in South Africa because it finishes on the place where I live um, with Cluden uh, on and off. So yeah, a couple of guys I'm I'm close with. 
but also to be fair um a lot of guys just disappear mm-hmm. it's probably what it is in normal life as well you know like you end your your career and then you have different focus and you move and that's it but like uh, the core group who is still in cycling of course that's still fun to hang out with and if we share a hotel at some races then for sure it ends up at the bar yes Our Zoom uh, participants, they can send in questions. So please be reminded, if you have any questions for Wolf, please send them in. I have one already from Wesley. What's the best day on the worst day on your bike, which you had in your career? Well, the worst day on my bike was literally when uh, Fabio Casatelli died. Remember the Tour de France? And, yeah. uh, and I remember that downhill. And we were, it was, there was no real stress. We were just closing down there in one line. Then I see like a, a Spanish guy from Kelman, like five, six position in front of me, starting to panic, panicking, like clicking his foot out, his foot out of the pedal and like to that next left corner. And I thought, okay, something is wrong. So we all kind of slowed down. Then you can't come around that corner and you see him lying there, uh, which wasn't really, really uh, nice to see. You just don't want to see things like that. What made it really, really bad was like they came in the race and I was dropped in the group with in the group then with Armstrong. And they came in the race and told us that he died uh, on the way in the hospital, uh, onto the hospital. And and that's, you know, then you, you start to put everything in question what you're doing. Is it mm-hmm. worth for people to lose their lives? Because remember, he had a newborn baby at home that he'd just seen like three days or something before he left to the tour. So that was a terrible day that you just start to question. And like the next day we neutralized, it was super hot in the Pyrenees. We neutralized that day. And there was kind of like that combination of those two days were by far the worst. Um, God, the best day, it's like, I mean, it always hurts. It best day is probably when I scored my best result because ultimately, you know, I never finished bike race without pain. So what is the best day? Then the best day is probably the same pain, but a better result than usually. Um, so, you know, some of the some of the, the better races that I've done, Tour Flanders, where I finished seventh, I think in 2000, when Stefan Wesemann won. We're really, really good as a team because Wesemann won, and I think Clear was fourth, and I was seventh. That was that was fun, and that was definitely one of one of my better days in the, in the monument of cycling, being being in the top seven. Fantastic. Do you still keep some of the old bikes, uh, or or how do you you give them away, or you you keep some of these bikes you had from the past? Well, in principle, we gave you know every every year you give your bike uh, after the season, you give it back, and then you get a new one. But I kept a couple of bikes, and uh, but I but I have to say. In the last years, I was always like so busy. And then I had this idea of like, ah, now I go for a little bike ride. Then I realized something is not working. And what do I do? I take one working part from, a, from another bike and put it on that bike to make it working. So I probably end up with having 10 bikes over the years. But I think this might be one functioning uh, at home, but that's about it. So I have a lot of parts. I'll have a lot of frames, but full functional traditional bike, then it's not too much left, to be honest. I want to go to the second part of your career as a director sportif. And now you, you have worked for many, many good teams and then Quebeca um, and so on in quick step. You have been, you have been with HTC High Road. I think it was, it was one of, a, for me, one of the most amazing teams uh, in, in the past years. Uh, together with Tony Martin and Mark Cavendish and you have worked really with some amazing riders. 
So I, I just wanted to see, obviously you've been on the other side, you've been a writer uh, and you've been now a director sportif. What did you take from other director sportifs you had in the past? What did you take on for yourself and to teach your, your young writers when they come to start writing? And what are things maybe you don't do as much anymore? Or how, how, is, this, how is this working for you? Well, what, what I tried to what I tried to do when I when I shift sides and it was a very short transition period and that was quite difficult because because I wrote in with Telecom till the end of two thousand five. In two thousand six, I've done some TV stuff and like some some VIP stuff for Telecom, but already after two thousand six, it was uh, it was clear that there would be a change in the management. So from from then on, I kind of like swapped. But my problem was, of course, I was riding with a lot of those guys. They were roommates, and then next year I would be their boss. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not super, super easy. And what I always try to do is then like learn from the bad things rather than the good things. So what I always try to to you know to think back wasn't like the the great victories we had because obviously then it worked out well. There were always like the biggest defeats that we had, and try to transfer you know the problems that we had into something good. So say where can we where can we change things? How could we do better than we did back then? And that kind of like was for me the key to say, well, what what were the the problems with with telecom that we have to change to make it a successful team? I mean, in 2006, I think they only won 17 races. Then we took it over. I think the budget was nearly cut back to half. And we won uh, 55 races, and two years later we won 85 races with 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 not even even half of the budget that we had on on wider paycheck than what we had with telecom. So um, so you know for me it was never really about like the money. It was never really about like buy more stars. It was give people a fair chance, see the weaknesses of people and the individual strength, and work on that. To say you know you will never make a sprinter winning the Tour de France. So why bother? You know, why would you even try? So make him the best sprinter, make the time trialist the best time trialist and whatever comes with it is nice. Um, but there was like, I think always, always what we tried to do and, and what was super important was the group of people. And that's what I also figured out was HTC was this really unique group that you say, okay, we had super young doctors from uh, from Hamburg there uh, in the clinic that they stepped up with with all the past problems with doping in the sport and everything they say like okay everybody's running away this is a chance the athletes need help they need you know they need the proper new way how can we help we have uh, you know ambitious coaches Sebastian Weber uh, young guys who are just willing to work 24 7 super motivated and do things in a different way so I think the group of people really really made it the uh, Made the big difference on on HCCI road. What do you think is the biggest difference today with with technology? Is that the power meter obviously changed a lot, and obviously the race radio and all these things. Uh, what do you think is really a positive aspect there, or do you prefer races when you don't have a radio? How do you see all the technology coming into the sport? Well, <clears throat> I think I think you know it's a natural thing. I think that's in in the human interest. To get better otherwise we would still uh, kind of like have this wooden stick and try to hunt the dinosaur uh yeah. living living somewhere in a in a in a, in a cave uh, that's against uh, human human interest i think cars getting better everything gets better so i think it's natural uh that you uh, that you invest into cycling uh, the steps now getting definitely smaller so there was a time till 2007 8 
where people were just like more training and more this and more that. But now technology did take over. So there were power meters, but not really used that well. So they were used, but who, what are you doing with the data? So the knowledge now is it's much bigger than it has been. Um, all this, well, what Sky created, marginal gains, um, became kind of a phrase, but it, it's true if you see time trial suits. If you just look at, just look at the jerseys from what happens from there till now, you know, how arrow they are, how different cuts they have, how different fabrics they have. I mean, we had a jersey and it was like, good luck. It was good enough for Tour Flanders at six degrees and rain. Then you would wear three layers of, of undershirts. And it was good enough to write a 40 degree mountain top finish. Um, it was still good enough. Yes. Now you literally have diff six different jerseys with cooling fabrics, with arrow, you know, with, with warm and thermo. And, and that's just an example. So I think it really did develop big time. And it's good to see. And like, I mean, unless you're really traditionalist, but then you go for this, uh, for this Strade, uh, Bianca, Grand Fondos, where you have to ride a bike that's 30 years and older. But otherwise, I think. Yes super interesting man every every time I, I come to your shop there in dubai for the race and see the wheels hanging there and you know see what's what's out there and i have to admit it also makes it much easier for me to ride out and to still hit an average of 33 that's kind of like what i always try to target uh, in the past i did it with 36 spokes and with an aluminum rim but now I need to have at least, you know, eight, 80 millimeter high carbon rims and an aero frame and this and that. But it helps. And it's so obvious that it helps. And I just like speed and, you know, free speed is always fun to have. Not true. Absolutely. Uh, who's your favorite rider in the current racing scene? And who do you enjoy most working with? Uh, it's a question from Chane. Yeah. Well, I think, I think uh, um, the guys who still like, who in technology, but who are thinking old school. So, for example, you know, uh, Philip Gilbert. So, mm -hmm. because he has his traditions and, you know, he has his own mind, you will not really change him, but he uses technology. So, it's not really that he refuses uh, to go on carbon wheels on, on the classics because he said, no, 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 I need to have my aluminum room because I did it for 15 years. So, but I still like these characters. This is absolutely these guys who race because they like to race. They don't like to race just to hit numbers. They like to race because they want to win. They, you know, they probably super happy if they if they give you some extra pain. Nikki Terpstra is one of those guys. You see him, you know, like sometimes you or the other the other riders in the bunch. They're really happy to have him as a teammate. Um, but they hate to race against it because every time, you know, it slows down, Nikki goes. Every time it hurts, Nikki puts extra pain on it. And those type of riders, I definitely like a lot. If you see now, of course, the, the very young generation, Evanapool, everybody talks about him. Yes. Fanapool, everybody talks about them. But they're real racers. They're, they don't race by numbers. If you've seen what, what Fanapool did doing the Amstel last year, I mean, you know, it left me with, the, with, with my mouth open. Yes. I've never seen anything. So he was a domestique to chase down the breakaway. Yes. Then, oh, he was a lead-out guy for himself. <laughs> and then by himself. And nobody came even to his bottom breaker. So that was... Yes. And that is Nietzsche's mental strength um, that I really, really like on, on, on these riders. I cannot remember a race like this. I've never seen a performance like Amstel from Thunderbolt when he was just chasing everyone, chasing everyone down and just riding past them and just winning. And, yeah. and obviously there were big names out there. Yeah, there was not that he was just passing anyone. That was 
one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen, and yeah. I, I, I can't remember anything like this. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. that must have been like a young Max or somebody. Of course, Wonderful yes. uh, will not win five times the Tour de France, but for what he's doing there on, and then you you see it. Uh, he wins mountain bike World Cups. He wins uh, you know cyclocross yeah. World Cups, and he wins uh, you know classics on the road. That's really amazing, and he seems to be a nice guy. I was, yeah. you know, again, we're, we're back to my age, uh, racing against his father. So, I mean, if you look at the family, of course, from his mother's side, it's, uh, you know, Polydor. So there comes his strengths for, you know, longer climbs and everything. And his father was, you know, a cyclocross, one Liege and, and so on, and was pretty fast. So he has the genes from both sides that should yeah. make a perfect bike runner. Wow. Yeah, very good. This answers almost a question. We have one question from Paul. Uh, who are you up and coming riders for the next four years? Anybody you have on the radar yet to watch? Anyone you, you feel like is somebody who is not recognized yet from the media, who is a big talent coming up? Well, I think that's really difficult now. And that is, is also a little bit the problem because, because they are so obvious um, that uh, with all the scouting systems, you know, teams spend fortunes of, of money to have people just traveling to under 23 race, everything is reported and so on. There are no real secrets for me anymore. So that Bernal would be that type of rider. Everybody knows that for, you know, a couple of years. So he's not really by surprise the Tour de France winner. That Evenepoel is, is a super talent. Everybody knew that. So that's a little bit the pity because it's not that, that you really can, can go out and say, he's going to be the one that nobody ever heard about him. What I would do if you don't have the budget and if you can't really compete for, um, you know, to get those guys on your team, what I would do is really look into mountain biking. Because I think, you know, if you look back into history, um, Kedel Evans was a mountain biker. Mm -hmm. It takes him a little bit of time to adjust the strategies and to kind of like, uh, you know, like uh, people said, they're really focused on, their, on, their, on themselves. Um, they're not really team players, but once they do it, I think in mountain biking is a lot of potential that is not discovered. And, you know, I think even potential like uh, um, at least stage, way, stage race winners, maybe even Tour de France winners. Everything else you can find on pro cycling stats, on, you know, cycling mm -hmm. roads, wherever you look, there's just no secret anymore. So so that's a little bit the flip side of technology that, that everybody knows everything. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, no, there's no surprise anymore. I think as well. Sometimes, obviously, when people know the distances and it, they're connected to the cars, I think the instinct of racing. So if you know the person is, I don't know, 50 seconds behind you, or is he five minutes behind you, or yeah. whatever. I think this is sometimes a bit, bit uh, shame that it's so controlled. And I had the pleasure to be in the car a couple of times, and it's quite amazing when you see how controlled the races are. How. Yeah. Um, you negotiate with other teams. Can I have one of your riders to chase the guys down and so on? Uh, that, that was quite amazing how you connected with the other team cars and other teams to, to negotiate these, these things. Um, I wanted to speak about the team. Obviously, a lot of people are in Dubai now in, in, inside and they are in quarantine and we're using, using indoor trainers. Uh, is the team and are you using Swift? Yeah, uh, well, I, I think I have a, um, you know, a, a straight run for 30 days now on Swift. So every day it became a routine for me because we also have a complete lockdown in South Africa here. Um, so nobody gets anywhere except grocery uh, shopping. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I know Eric Min, the CEO and, and you know, one of the founders of, of Swift really good because he's a big supporter of that Kenyan SRAM women's team that, that I yes. work 
as a sport director. So he joined our camp in um, in Spain. So he was part of it. I, I rode outside with him and, you know, he explained me a couple of tricks and how this, we all know the start is super difficult on, on, on Swift and when to use the power-ups and everything. So it's pretty interesting if you really race there that these little tricks, of course, uh, of course, are super important to be kind of successful. Actually, I was uh, two days ago, I was ninth in an A-category race, <laughs> which, <laughs> which kind of like was absolutely on my limit. Absolutely. I can only do it on the flat part because now it's like 78 kilos. There's no chance to stay with the guys uh, on virtual racing on the climbs. But on the flat, it's kind of all right. You have just have to accept no matter what it takes, you have to be in the group and yes. hang on. So if you think like, okay, I leave a little gap and I come back later, that's the algorithm there. And they know that is yes. kind of really in favor of the group. So attacking is not a good idea. And, uh, and trying to cross uh, to another group, uh, jump across is not a good idea. You will never make it. So the, the drafting that is set in the algorithm for the group is so big that you just, no matter what it takes, even if you think I can only do five pedal strokes, you better do this five pedal strokes and stay in the group and hold yes. the groups down because once you're off, you never get back on. So, um, so you know, it takes a little bit of time, but, uh, but you know, you, you can get yourself into it. For outdoor riding, there's, there's no question. But it also can keep you really, really fit. I mean, if I see my VO2 max and if I see, you know, how I brought up my FTP now, I think my FTP now is, is uh, 347 or something. So around 350 uh, watts coming from really like nowhere. So I think I improved it like really, really a lot. Wow. And I always try to go the hard way. So I don't use a ventilator here, even if it's 30 degrees, because, you know, there are some, some studies that like going in the heat, training in the heat really gives you a big advantage. So I know that, for example, like Boson Hagen to prepare for the world championships in Qatar, he trained basically on Swift in the sauna, mm. in the heat. So that's mm. um, something to, to do with the blood and, 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 and stuff like that. So, uh, so there is some theories behind it. It doesn't make you perform that well. So if you really want to perform, you put three ventilators in front of you and cool you as much as you can. But for me, it's more like, you know, try to get a training effect and something. But yeah, like, like I said, like every day, uh, every morning, I, at least I do one hour on Swift. Wow, that's cool. And how about the team? You have uh, team meetings and they train together. You, you make some group rides with all of the riders from the team or uh, everyone is on his own right now? Well, right now we split them into into different events because you know there are races. There is even prize money up there for uh, for races. Um, so so we split them, and we have a little bit of the problem with with the timing because we have uh, we have riders living in the US, we have riders living in New Zealand, yes. and riders living in Europe. And to get them all together is is quite mm -hmm. difficult. Um, so, uh, but of course we give you know everybody like a look after each other and give ride ons. But then we schedule them. With uh, with a kind of like um, heads up a couple of days before for certain races, whatever suits them, and uh, we have three of the Swift Academy winners, and in, in the Pro Peloton in our team, so they qualified via Swift for Pro Contract, and and that is goes crazy. So to my understanding, like the NTT uh, under twenty three team does do the same on the men's side, and I think in. 2019 they had like 60,000 applications to yes. do it and uh, so it's it's just a huge huge growing market 
and it's really interesting. I mean, in these situations, of course, you know, they're definitely a winner of this crisis. Yes, we had a lady, uh, we have a, a female team here, Wolfis Contessas, and we had one of the ladies, her name was Yvonne, and she was riding uh, in this category, and then she got selected with three other girls, and yeah. uh, she, she was going for the camp, and it was a super experience for her. Uh, there was another lady uh, who, was, who was chosen to go there, but obviously an amazing achievement uh, to, be, yeah. to be selected, uh, even from, as you said, like thousands of people who wanted to be in the team, and she was one of three. Um, and uh, it was kind of an amazing, amazing experience for her, she told us, yes. Yeah. Very good. Um, do you feel it's more stressful to be in the car or did you feel it was more stress to be, to get ready to race and so on? Or how do you, what do you, what do you prefer? Yeah, um, I think it was a process. So when I was in Neopro, it was not really stressful. It was all about excitement. And in my very first professional race uh, with Helvetia La Stress, in the sprint, I lost my front tire um, in the sprint. So about 20, kilo, 20, 20 meters from the line. So I made it through the line being six or something, but I nearly strangled myself into in the in the tire. So I had like half a page of picture hanging there with, with, in between the, the tire, the wheel, the fork with my head. And uh, so then, you know, I was thinking about it. I thought, oh, well, things could go really wrong here. And then I decided that I had for myself um, to say, I would have died today. My parents probably would be sad, but at the end they have two more daughters, so they probably get over it and it would be worth it. So, you know, you're kind of like, I live my dream and if you pay the price, that's it. When you're then like 35 um, and you have a house and, you know, your first child goes to school and uh, you don't really want to die anymore. How can you stay competitive? It's the experience. So you yeah. don't have to take certain risks because, you know, after that left corner, comes a long straight there's no there's no panic to take but you, you you kind of like reduce the risk by gaining more experience and that's how you stay competitive so you know first first i would say like um i wasn't really stressed about racing at all the first years never at all um later on it it, it is kind of like you know what can happen you've seen a lot of crashes and you kind of like back off a little bit so that changes in the car um yeah, you always have this feeling you want to do more, you know, yeah, if you could push the pedal for them, you want to push the pedal for them. you can't. So, you know, you can only do and uh, what you never want to do is kind of like transfer via the radio, any kind of panic into the peloton yes. because, you know, literally everybody says the same. If you know, in seven kilometers comes a left corner and there comes crosswind, everybody is like, stay, go to the front, go to the front, look after the captain, go to the front. So it's not, like, you know, and it doesn't really make things better if you just start yelling at them or something. Um, you know, you have to have a good team meeting, but then you live with consequences and you just trust your riders that they do the right thing. So panic or really overexcitement is, is not really, really a good thing. And that's what I remember when I was racing. I hated it when in the time trial, the people behind me hung the horn and made a chaka chaka and kind of like, you know, like telling me, yeah, come on and you can do it and go faster. That would not make me faster. That would just make me angry and not focusing on my ride rather than, you know, focus, focusing on the idiot behind me. So, so I never really liked it. I know other people do like it and they get goosebumps and uh, be being cheered about like, I never really liked that from behind the car. If it's not super important and you can suck off the atmosphere, 
that is super nice. If you if you remember the the individual time trial up to RTS, so that was like nearly a million people out there. Yes. And like for me, there was no reason to go as fast as I could because just had to go from A to B, and and that was it, and save energy for the next day. But that was one of the most amazing uh, stages. That's probably how an Ulrich felt, a Pantani felt, an Indurain felt when they came up first, because everybody knows your name. You know, they have a start list, they look at it, and yes. then you get really, really excited by enjoying this excitement, but not really panicking or stressed. It's just never really good in bike race to panic. Fantastic, fantastic. I think a great insight into the life of a sports director uh, is that movie Chasing Legends. And I really love that movie because it was obviously an amazing team. I was very happy they were on Scott bikes that year and they had just an amazing tour. Uh, Mark Cavendish and Tony Martin, Bernie Eisel and everyone. And you were in the movie together with Eric Zabel. And, and uh, yeah, it was just an amazing movie. How, do you remember how, how this was? It was 2009 Tour de France and you had some amazing days when you when you split the peloton. And I think the, the nine riders were ahead of the, uh, all the HTC got, got away in the breakaway in, in the Normandy. Um, can you tell us a bit about that day? Yeah, which is really interesting because not sure if you've seen the cycling news articles lately when uh, when Contoda was uh, was expressing his feelings about like Armstrong coming back, and he picks specifically that day that the team didn't look after him yes. and that Chinkepi was a friend of Armstrong and that's why you know he knew what HTC would do and and that put me back in, into the time of the, you know what we absolutely would not bother about Contador or Armstrong or GC yeah. or anything. It was just like, okay, we want to win this stage yes. and that's what we're going to do. And then Eric Zabel was always the guy in the upfront car. So he was he was driving a half an hour before the peloton and then was, was telling us, like, listen, there comes a corner. It doesn't really look like because it's close to the coast, um, but it's covered, but you can't see it, but there's crosswind. So if there's a chance, and then we just took it on. So it's like oh. complete nonsense who talked to who and what and if and how. And that's how we just managed to say, okay, it's, it's far out, but we have by far the strongest team for these conditions. And why not take it on? And then luckily we finished it off. So Mark won that stage. Yes. And it was uh, was super impressive. Yeah. 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 If people but haven't watched that movie, Chasing Legends, uh, they should really try to get a copy. It's really something, I think it's uh, cycling history, uh, really, really good uh, documentary. Um, if you if you could spend, I have two more questions. So, what would Rolf twenty twenty tell Rolf nineteen ninety nine uh, when turning pro? What wish you would have known uh, turning pro? Um, what would you tell him? Um, that cycling does not only come from cycling. Um, that's like that's what I learned right after my career when we tried to make these small changes, and we started with score stability and functional training. So uh, you know, like just. A little bit like I'm one meter ninety, so I'm pretty tall for a bike rider. Too tall with with like seventy five kilos in the tour, sometimes seventy three. So pretty light but tall. So I'm really not really stable by nature. But all these accelerations, all these changes in in rhythm, in tempo, needs a lot of uh, strength in your in your body. And that's what I only realized, unfortunately, once I stopped. And we had this fitness trainer with us with HTC. And, and he was offering management lessons in the morning at seven in the morning. I said, okay, just to, you know, have the same feeling like the riders pre-prep and this and that we do it. And then I realized I could probably attack easier when I retired um, than when I was a rider by just doing mm -hmm. something else and just riding your bike. And nowadays was, 
as many kilometers as you can do, um, you know, do that and, and go for it. So a training camp on Mallorca, a, a regular week was 1300 kilometers. So it was an average of 200 a day. And there was one rest day and there was a hundred. That's always what, what Eric Zabel used today, used to say, like, yeah, rest day is a hundred kilometers. That's, you know, <laughs> that gets the out of your legs. So usually it was 180, 200, 220, 100, 180, 200, 220, 100. So that was like what we have done retrospectively, I would say like complete nonsense. Um, just have more recovery and do some stuff that's really important for your body. That's, you know, can't change it anymore. Very good, very good. Uh, my last question really is, if you could spend one day with a famous person, dead or alive, who would that be? Um, probably Mandela, because, you know, I have this, I'm, I'm close to South Africa, and, and we had this, uh, this trip to Robben Island, where he was arrested in prison for more than 20 years, and I was in his, his personal cell, where he, where he lived on these three square meters, and then if you see what, what he was managing, you know, how he could control himself getting out, being in the power position. So literally he could have, you know, take big revenge on everybody when he, when he got out of prison but, prison, but he didn't. He really tried to create this rainbow nation, not really saying like it's, it's going really well right now here. But I mean, him as a, as a person, as a personality and knowing some people who talk to him. So we had, we had uh, contact with the national rugby manager when the Springboks won the World Cup. So he actually did the tour with us on Robben Island. And he explained when Mandela came into the cabin on the half final there uh, and talked to every player, knew every name of every player and how he united that team. Super impressive. So that would be the person that, uh, that I would probably say that's somebody I would like. Very good. I have a few more questions. We call them burning questions. It's just quickly. You, you give me quickly an answer. Yeah. Um, socks, long or short socks? Uh, I have ugly legs or long, long socks. Okay. Chamois cream, yes or no? Uh, no. No. Modern, modern, uh, uh, modern inserts, they are so good. No chamois cream. Okay. Tattoos, yes or no? And if yes, where and what? The what? The tattoos. Yeah. If you have tattoos. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I will not show you uh, because they're really <laughs> up. That was also part of like a California training camp where my colleagues decided to have one. And then I was so bored that I said, like, how much is it? And they said $60. And they said, oh, I said, oh, that's nothing. So let's do it. So I ended up with a devil on my arm, like a, a comic devil, a cartoon devil. And yes. next day, six flat tires, nearly crashed, had a, had a, had a, a screw through my rim. So, and it was raining the whole day. So all back luck. And I said, of course, how stupid can you be? I have a devil on my arm. So I went back and put an angel next to it. You drinks it and now you're, okay, very good. Very good. <laughs> Riding long, steady or short and hard? Uh, in the past, long and steady, really enjoying everything, nature. No, short and hard. Very good. Uh, clothes, you rather go short in Jersey or you go one piece? Uh, with my body shape, uh, you can cover up with uh, shorts and jerseys, so I prefer that. Very good. Shaving your legs, you still shave or no? Just for events. I'm just getting, to, I don't even shave my face, so why would I shave my legs? In principle, <laughs> if I do under um, the Cape, uh, Cape Argos here, the one-day event, yes. and then yeah, regularly I would, I would shave my legs for that kind of stuff. On a Sunday morning, you lay in or you get up early? 
Um, I don't get up early, but I would still try to do my ride. But I, I can't understand people riding at five in the morning. Okay, we do this a lot in Dubai. As I, know. Well. Yeah, I, know, yeah. uh, I thought wind? for a while, I thought I would be the only guy doing sports. Yes. Because when I started, everybody else was back, but I only figured that out when one time I went out with my garden. I said, come on, we have to go for a ride. And I said, okay, when? Six o'clock. I said, yes. isn't it getting dark? No, he said in the morning. I said, no, yes. I'm not riding at six in the morning. So yes. we did. And then I figured out there were hundreds of people jogging yes. and biking, which I never see if you start at yes. 10.30 because it's just getting hot. But I'm definitely somebody uh, trains late. Very good. The wind is your friend or the enemy? In principle, it's my friend because I know it cracks all the people around me and that gives me a, a kind of psychological advantage. Tire pressure, high or low? No, low. Uh, in, the, in the past, pretty high. It's it always like this, that you think you get a concussion when you hit a hole that always make yes. you think you're fast. But now wow. knowing, the, knowing yes. the number, now it's pointless. For brakes, disc or rim? Uh, disc, if I have a mechanical service for me, uh, so yes. if I have a trusted bike show, like if I would be in Dubai, I would definitely be on disc. Here right now, I have a rim brake bike, and um, I basically prepared my own bike at home with disc brakes, but mechanical disc brakes, yes, and the mechanical shifting for the simple reason if you travel, yeah. you know, you won't have leakage, mm -hmm. and if something is not working, you just put in yes. another, another cable, but. Even that is, is this break, but mechanical is. And last question, if you go for holiday, you go for cycling or you go to the beach? I uh, probably don't go to the beach. I probably go hiking with the family somewhere in the outback. Mountain, okay, very good, very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think we really uh, spent a lot of time now this evening, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a great conversation and, and really took me back in, into uh, into the early days of my cycling uh, career, watching watching the tour and everything. So, uh, and I really want to acknowledge you again for this. Yeah, I think you did a lot for the sport, and uh, I think you still do with the team. And it's always nice when you come to Dubai that we can catch up, and you're always super helpful, and it's just fun to be around. And um, so, thank you very much. You're a real legend of the sport for me. Um, and yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed. And um, we have next Tuesday. No, it's no, no, it's Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. It's Matteo Trentin, um, the European champion, second in Harrogate. Um, it's a great pleasure to have him on the show. So thanks for your time, and um, yeah, good luck for the season. I hope we see you soon um, back yeah. in action in the, in the team car. Well, thanks, thanks to you. Say hello to to Theo. Um, I worked with him at Quickstep. Super nice guy. Also, like, uh, so I think he has good stories to tell. I uh, wish you all, you know, to stay healthy and to get out pretty soon on your bike. It's always impressive how you can, you know, keep it together there in Dubai and how motivated you guys are. So I hope to catch up live somewhere, somewhere, Wolfie, and, uh, you know, keep on uh, supporting the sport. And right? people like you are super important. I think that's why it's a pleasure for me to uh, to do the thing with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This really means a lot. Thank you. And of course, your family. Evening. Yes, without thank you, your bike, thank you. it goes nowhere. So, very good. <laughs> yes, thanks to Gabby. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, enjoy the evening, everybody. Thank you very much, Ross. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Enjoy. Bye bye. Bye bye.